You're listening to the Curator Salon podcast. I'm Geeta Joshi, and today in this episode, I am talking to Gary Mansfield, who is the host of the Mizog Art podcast. Gary is also an artist and curator, and we met at the Newport Street Gallery to have a conversation to record for this episode. So there is a little background noise, but I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Gary Mansfield, to the Curator Salon. Hi, Geeta. Thanks so much for taking time to meet with me today. That's quite all right. So, Gary runs the Mizog Art Podcast. How's that going? It's going well. It's going all right, thank you. You've had quite a lot of high-profile artists on your I show. I have. I have been lucky enough to. But I wanted us to talk about particularly your journey into art, um, or the art world. Yeah. So, how did that start? Well, I, I had a bit of a checkered background. I got arrested for drugs in 1994. Um, I was set up by a drugs gang for quite a lot of drugs. It was a... It turned out to be £4.2 million pounds worth of Class A drugs. Um, I thought I was, well, I was into, at the time, um, selling fake clothing. And I thought it was the labels. I was under the impression that it was the labels of the dodgy clothing that I was taking up to Birmingham while I was going to visit friends in Liverpool. Um, and I never even got out of the car park. The police and customers pounced on us, um, or on me. And... Um, I stayed away from home for several years after that. I got convicted in 1994, um, a 14-year prison sentence. Um, and while I was in there, um, I went into a prison called Swellside on the Isle of Sheppey. And it's uh, quite a... It's, it was one of those prisons like you see on the telly where there's a lot of stabbings, a lot of violence. It wasn't a very nice place. Um, and I decided I wanted to try and get into computers but the, com- the list to get on the computer class was very long. Um, and the best way to do it was to get into the education department and then you get moved up the list a little bit quicker than anyone who isn't in education. Um, the only class that was vacant was the art class. Um, and I was never into art. And at school, it was always a um, the class where you can sort of mess around and it was a bit relaxed, you know, you didn't have to learn too much. So I thought, oh, that'll do for a couple of months until my place comes up. I got in there. Um, the art tutor was brilliant he was like a really fun person and when you're living around a lot of craziness which was in there at the time to see someone like him I always referred to him as a Basil Forty type character because he was he wasn't like aggressive like Basil Forty he was quite camp really but he just he was just so sarcastic Um, and he was really good fun to be around Um, and he, when someone took a bit of an interest in art, you could see he just changed. He just loved to see us cons taking an interest in art, which made me want to take an interest in it. Um, he showed me some drawing techniques, and the drawings that I was doing what were like a 10-year-old's turned out to be a lot better once he'd shown me these techniques. So I could see that there was something inside me that sort of, Got it, you know. And were you, so how often do art classes take place in a prison? At the time, it was every day, every afternoon, because I was on that class. But it come to a point when the new enrolments were coming up. So I had to either enrol on the art class, uh, enrol on the computer class, or enrol on the art class. I didn't want to do computers anymore. I'd fallen in love with art at this point, thanks to Dougie. Um, although there was very minimal books in the in the library and then Dougie I'd enrolled in the art class we got given an assignment where we had to draw an artwork from a magazine and talk about the artwork and I saw a picture of Zandra Rhodes 
um, and in the background was a small painting, and she'd mentioned in, in the story that it was an artist from Earl's Court called Dougie Fields. For me to write about the artist, I thought, well, I'll just contact him. I'll just write Dougie Fields, Earl's Court, London. Um, and I sent a letter off asking for information about him. Um, I told Dougie. Dougie thought it was hilarious. Um, none of us thought we'd hear anything. Dougie replied a couple of weeks later. He said, um, you know, I don't know how your letter got here, but it did. Here's some information on me. Good luck. I replied to say thank you very much. He sent me a few more catalogues. And then Dougie, like that, that, um, that assignment was over and done. And Dougie bought a TV in one time and showed us a, a series called Oil on Canvas that was on, I think it was on BBC Two. And two artists featured on there were Patrick Hughes and Ray Richardson. Patrick Hughes deals with perspective. Ray Richardson deals with composition. Because um, it was all about the elements of art. And I loved Patrick's because it, it was the, the moving paintings, mm. the illusion of moving painting. And by this time, I'd already thought, I want to do more in art. I want to go on from this course I'd just enrolled in. I wanted to do the next one. And by this time, I thought I could even try a degree. Um, I had several years left in jail at this time. Um, and then when Ray Richardson came on the screen, Ray Richardson spoke like I speak, even, even more Cockney. And he was the turning point for me because I was convinced that as much as I fell in love with art, people like me weren't in the art world. I was convinced that people were, were that artists were all middle class, spoke like poets, and I wouldn't be able to be a part of that. And then when I heard Ray Richardson, who was an excellent painter, and he was, uh, 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 he was an excellent established painter, and he spoke just like I did, that was it. I was like, yes, I can be an artist. And that was the turning point. And a little while down the line, they come in with the um, Sensations catalogue. And I was... So how, is that sorry. how you always saw artwork? Like when they brought in books and catalogues or did you have like slideshows and things like that? We had nothing at all. We just had the books in the library were um, the ones that you'd expect to find in a small library, in a small art section. It would be Matisse, Picasso. Um, all very art history yeah, based. Yeah. The only, I've, I've joked about this a few times, the only modern type ones were the how-to ones. And ironically, it was Rolf Harris's cartoon time. And he's in there in church now, so he can read it as much as he likes. You know. But um, it was very minimal. Um, Dougie would bring in, if he, Dougie went to a show on a weekend, he'd bring in catalogues and just show us. A, and none of us knew about art. We knew about drawing. You know, we Techniques yeah. and things, right? Yeah. So when he brought in, I was convinced that I would spend the next few years learning to hone my abilities on drawing, painting, and hopefully sculpture. Because you've got to remember, we can't, we're not allowed to use tools in there. So pen and pencils, and we had to, we even had to ask for the pencil to be sharpened for us, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so there was no hand tools as such. But I thought, while I'm in for this seven years, or I had five, five and a half years left at this point, I could um, learn in the traditional sense. And then he gave us a sensations catalogue, which... It was that art that everybody says, that's not art, I can do that. So I didn't see it as being art. I saw it as being advertising or it just wasn't, I thought it was taking the piss really from, from art, from what I knew. Bearing in mind, I knew nothing. Um, and he said to me, well, 
don't criticise it too much because you have no idea what it is you're talking about. He said, take this catalogue back, have a read of it, and if you want to sort of slack it off afterwards, help yourself. At least you've got half an idea of what you're talking about. So I did, so I did take it back to myself, and inside, as a bookmark, was a postcard with Mona Hatoum's No Way To, which is just a colander with um, nuts and bolts through each hole. And I'd already seen this, and I said to him, like, you know, how's that art? I said, that's five pounds worth of colander and nuts and bolts. That can't be in a gallery. And um, he just said, well, read about it. And on the back was a little bit of text, and it, it was saying about that, um, that she'd moved away from her homeland and the colander was a barrier over her home. The nuts and bolts were blocking the entrances and exits because she wasn't allowed back home. And um, that just resonated with me with my situation at the time. And I was like, Christ, how can she say all of that with that bag of nuts and bolts and a colander? You know, it's just trip to B&Qs and you've got an amazing artwork. But that unlocked the conceptual key in me. And then I, I would look through the catalogue and I'd look at Damien Hurst's you know, cut in half sheep, which I always joked that there was someone on D-wing in for similar, you know. Um, and I'd look at that with different eyes, like Marcus Harvey's Myra Hindley. I'd look at that with different eyes. You know, we, everyone obviously hated it because of the subject. But then I'm seeing how and why he made it. Also, it was a children's handprint, exactly, wasn't it? Yeah, things that yeah, one, yeah. For just extra shock, you know. Um, and yeah, I just looked through this catalogue and I thought, this is it. This is... I no longer saw it as a shortcut because I thought all of these artists are just doing shortcuts. I fell in love with conceptual art that, through that catalogue that night. So I had it photocopied. I got Dougie to photocopy it for me. And in the back of the catalogue, it had the um, which gallery represented each artist. So I just ripped the same letter out. Knowing that artists do reply, I just ripped the same letter out to about 30 artists and sent them, it was mainly the white cube, funny enough, and, and listen, um, but I sent them all, all to there. Um, and what were you asking them? Uh, it was the same, it just said, um, my name's, I can't remember, it was 20 years ago, mm. but it was something like, my name's Gary Mansfield, I've just discovered conceptual art, I'm in prison, um, the only art books we have, and I, I put in a little joke about, like, you know, Ralph, Ralph Harris's cartoon time, although, you know, he wasn't, in jail at the time. But I'd say about all we've got is a, f a few books, one being Ralph Harris. Could you send me some information on your work and career? And I always put at the bottom, not that it sort of, um, you know, it was it, they could easily disbelieve it, but I always put at the bottom, if it's any consolation, my offence was neither violent or sexual, just to make them feel a bit more at ease. And then um, a couple of weeks later, Bearing in mind, I sent about 30 out over a two or three day period. A couple of days later, I've gone into my cell and there's a package on the floor, an A4 package. And I've opened it up and it was from two artists who were a couple at the time. It was Sarah Lucas and Angus Fairhurst. Um, who said, oh, and it was from Sarah had written the letter, but it was from the pair of them. She said, oh, thanks for getting in touch. Brilliant to hear from you. Great to hear what you're doing. Here's some catalogues and press packs. So then I'd reply to them and say, oh, thank you so much for that. And I would read everything in there. I wouldn't understand most of it because it was, you know, I'm going into an area that I didn't understand anyway, and let alone, you know, the, the, the vocabulary used. Um, 
And then the next one was Gavin Turk, uh, the day or next day or, you know, a couple of days later. Um, and then it just went on like that. Marcus Harvey, Tracy Emin, um, just dozens and dozens. And then I'd get recommended artists. I'll write to this artist. You know, if you like mine, you'll like hers. So then I'd write to them. And then it comes to a point when I'd get um, parcels from artists that I've not even written to. They would say, oh, so-and-so mentioned you. I thought you might like to see my work. Oh, isn't that nice? So, oh, it's beautiful. And 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 um, when it came to a point, I, I'd found something else. I, I'd never been involved. I was never into football. I was never in, I was just into making trouble when I was a kid, you know. But I'd never had any interests. And this was the first time that I'd had a proper interest in anything, a passion, really, Um and I'd put all my energy into doing this course. And I said to myself that if I can get the top marks in this course, it was only an intermediate GMVQ, but you know, I left school with no qualifications hardly. Um, I said to myself, if I can get the best, the, the absolute best in this um, course, that's it. I'm going to change, change my life. I'm going to change my ways. And... When the assessors come back, come in to see my work, normally everyone would hang it around the, the art class. But I was so prolific with everything I was doing. It I had it around the art class, around the reception of the education area, all around the walls inside the education, going up. It was everywhere. And the assessor come in and he said, "Not only is this the best I've seen on like the prison visits, he said it's the best I've seen anywhere." He said, "This can be used for this course. That one can be used for the next one up." The one going up the stairs, he said, that's a degree level if I just do some better written work on it, you know. And he was just saying about the standard of it. And he wasn't saying that. That was before I even got the um, the exam results. That was just the assessor coming in to look at it. And uh, when he walked away, that was the 18th of April, 1998. And that day is when I left my old life behind and my new life started and I genuinely felt weight come off my shoulders that day. Wow. I walked back to my cell or back to the prison wing and I just felt, I mean I'm a big bloke anyway, but I felt like two or three stone lighter. It was as if all my troubles had gone and I referred to myself as a born again artist because that's how I feel that the born again Christians might feel, you know, how I've seen people you know, take in their God, whatever God it might be and I've seen them people change. And that's what it, what art done to me. The transformation. Yeah. And and I used to use a dodgy name when I was a criminal called Roy Maynard um, when I was booking into hotels and things like that. And I always joke that Roy Maynard is the person I left behind and Gary Mansfield started that day, you know. Um, Such a good story. So when you were cool. getting all these catalogues and everything from people, were you, did you actually have anybody else to have that discussion with and sort of no. talk about the things you were reading? No. And there's a, f a friend of mine, Mike, there was two of us, well, there was three of us in the art class who were using the art class for what it was. Everyone else went in there for a, for a mm. mess about, you know, and just so they didn't have to work. And Dougie was a bit of a bowl over, you know. Um, but there was three of us. There was a, um, a Colombian guy who had been caught for bringing cocaine into the country he was quite into it but he insisted on being called picasso he was a bit of a bit of a loony he insisted on being called picasso um he loved art but he was quite eccentric there was me and another guy called michael davis 
and us two would talk about art. We knew, we knew, we knew as much as each other, you know, we was learning together, but it was a, a big thing for morale that I was getting all this stuff from the artists, not only just for the art class, but the guys on the wing, because the prisoners, as prisoners, I know, you know, we all deserve to be, be there as such, but when you talk on a humane level, when you're in prison, you haven't got much dignity, future, you've got a big chip on your shoulder, you know, you're convinced that, that you're a piece of crap of society, really, you know, is a bit of an exaggerated, but you do feel you haven't got much self-worth. And when I saw these people who don't know me being so kind and sending stuff in and other people like friends and other people on the wing saw it because it was a bit of a little joke that this guy down at the end of the, the the wing was getting all this stuff from artists but it was making everyone feel good that there is possibilities out there you know that people can look at us in a different way being prisoners and did you keep up the correspondence with the artists yeah. i mean it faded off it came in waves like christmas cards i'd get come christmas i'd get loads of christmas cards from different artists and a few artists would send me a little artwork, um, like a little personal thing. Nice. Um, yeah, and I'd have like these, I, I had Gary Hume artwork in my prison cell, which when I look back at it, it was fucking amazing. <laughs> Gary Hume in the prison <laughs> cell, you know? And I had it up there for years. It was only a, a, he done like the, do you remember you used to get like the, you do a thing with lemons, you put lemons onto a bit of paper and then you scorch them underneath the grill. He'd done this thing with lemon juice and I had it up in my cell and I was, because I, when I'm writing to all these artists, you've got to remember, I just knew they was in this show. I didn't know how famous these artists were. Right, So I, So I didn't know whether they were just an artist who sort of put stuff up in a library, for mm. instance, and someone had bought their artwork and put it in this show, because I knew nothing about them other than they was in this Sensations catalogue that I've been given. And it wasn't until a few months down the line, I'm like, fucking all these people are really important people in the art world. You know, when, you, when I start reading about YBAs, and I'm like... That one writes to me, that one writes to me, that one writes. It was, it was quite amazing, you know. And yeah, when I come out, a lot of these artists um, did say, oh, when you get out, come and see me. Here's my studio address. Come and see me. Um, so I did keep all of those people to one side. So I put a list of all of those people. And pretty much all of them I've met since I met when I come out. Because just before I did get released in 2001, I started a... Um, a degree at University of East London so I'd worked my way up towards that degree So you st you're doing the degree while you were still in prison? Yeah, only for the last two weeks because it worked out, I, I was released um, mid-April, uh, mid-October and I'd started just two weeks before. Oh, okay But a nice little thing was that I got released on a Wednesday morning got released at quarter past nine and my very first lecture was at half eleven that same day, so most people would go get released go down the pub, you know, have a nice cold beer. Um, and then I didn't. I just got on the train, went straight to UE, uh, University of East London, got there about five minutes before my degrees. Um, sorry, I got there about five minutes before my lecture started, walked in, and I was the happiest man that university had ever seen because I was released straight out of one institution, released into another. Into the one that you always wanted to be in as well, oh, like in that art environment. The morning I left, they had to take a Polaroid picture of me. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't digital, it was an actual Polaroid. And it came out and there was four Polaroids in a square. And I was supposed to be getting released at nine o'clock. At five to nine, I've gone down there, had my photo taken. 
didn't come out. He couldn't find any more film. So I was getting pissed off with the screws, the prison officers, because they couldn't find this other film to put in. And I had to have these photographs. They had to have these before I left. One goes to the police, one goes to the um, probation, the other two stay in the prison. So it's taken, they didn't come out, so he threw them in the bin and he went off to look at the others. And I was really at the end because now I was meant to be, meant to be leaving prison at nine. Now it's five past nine. It, this is my freedom now. I'm being held back during my time. But he's walked away and I picked these photographs up out of the bin and I just put them in my pocket. So I had these digital, like the stereotypical ones holding your name, you know, Mansfield 2527, which was my number. He's gone away. He's got these photographs. I've been released. I went to uni and I had to have my photograph taken there that morning for my university card. So in the same day, I've had these two photographs and it was a, then, it was a week later, I got my one back from the uni on my actual card. And honestly, I looked 10 years younger and it was only like two hours or maybe four hours between. The difference in me was amazing on these two wow. photographs. Because one of them, people think I'm trying to look tough in this photograph or trying to look mean. I'm not. I was just really pissed off. That's so I'm scouring at the at the camera, you know, because he, he was messing about with us. But, um, yeah, so that was the day That's I got right. out of prison. Wow. But also that liberation as well, like being in that environment that you wanted to be. Obviously Definitely. sort of, you know, just flourishing there if yeah. your picture's so different. And it was, it was quite hard coming out of one environment where you can imagine it's a prison. Although it was an open prison I finished off in, it was still sort of testosterone-filled environment. Everyone still has to be a little bit macho. Everyone's got their guard up because there's still a lot of violence goes on in there. And I've been around just men for seven years. And then I go into a university and society has changed a lot. Oh, of course. I, like before I went away, it was all the, all the blokes and all the girls. And then, yeah, we'd all go out, but it was all the blokes and all the girls. So it was two groups going out. Now... Everyone was, everyone, like boys and girls were mixing. You know, they was a lot younger than I was, but everyone was friends. And it was, it was a lot more healthy, you know, but I'm coming out of a very strong environment, going into a very liberal one. And in university, you know, there's a lot goes on in university that I obviously hadn't been exposed to while I was in prison. It was a very big culture shock for me. And how was that uh, transition and that learning into sort of integrating into that different well, environment? I was like a little puppy, first of all. I was just running around everywhere with a big smile on my face, wagging my tail, you know, no matter, you know, where I was. But we'd go out to art shows and um, it was quite good because like, we'd go to a private, I'd get invited to private views. I was on a lot of gallery um, mailing lists, so I'd get invited to these private views. So I'd take half a dozen of the students along with me. But it was quite funny that we'd go to a private view and it'd be to one of the artists that I was away with. So I'd have to go and introduce myself to the artist and they was always so pleased to see me. But it was a bit weird that this ex-con, first year uni, <laughs> is like sort of getting to know all of these big YBA names, you know, and they was buying me drinks and inviting me to the after show and that sort of, it was, it was beautiful. It was really beautiful. Oh, what a nice transition. Yeah. So, what happened after that then? After you left, after you finished your degree, did you keep up with the artwork? Or yeah, I started. I did start. I did start a masters, but the girl I was with, she fell pregnant, and we couldn't afford both. And you can't sell kids on eBay, so I had to get rid of the masters. 
and I put it down and I did, I was a bit immature really because I thought, well, if I can't be involved in art, it was, it was like, it was like I'd been dumped by a girlfriend. But did you think that to have a life in art or with art or making art meant that you had to be in an academic institution? No, but I couldn't afford to make it either. Um, and I didn't have anywhere to make it. We had, we now had a small flat with a baby. I was having to go to work. To, I had to change my life. And because I didn't, because I couldn't make what I wanted to make, then I just said, well, if I can't do what I want in the art world, I don't want to be a part of it. So, and it's just like with a girlfriend, you know, if you can't be with her, I don't even want to go to the same clubs as her or, you know, mix with her friends. I wanted to make a complete break. And um, it was, I had that feeling in my stomach, like when, um, yeah, like when you're broken up. With, uh, oh my god! Um, and Why was, did you feel it had to be so harsh? Like you couldn't because I, I couldn't. I tried it at first, mm. and it was just because it, it just wasn't working, and I couldn't make the art. I couldn't do what I wanted. I wasn't happy with just going to shows and possibly making. You know, I could do collages here, and that wasn't what I wanted to do. You know, I had aspirations bigger than I was. You know, than I was. Um, so I just, I stopped making art for years, seven years, ironically, seven years. Didn't wow. do anything, blanked it completely. If I saw stuff in the paper, I wouldn't even read about it. I'd just turn the page. But, but saddened, having that knotted feeling in my stomach. Yeah, because it was something yeah. you couldn't have, and so I you actually get, did have a reaction yeah. to it as much as you were actually rejecting it yeah, as well. Yeah, I'd get upset if I was reading it. Not, you know, mm. I would start crying, but that knot would get tighter, so I just wouldn't. And then we went, my mate Lee, who was teaching in Islington at the time in an art school, he invited me to a talk at the Foundling Museum, which Tracy Emming was talking at. And um, we've, we've gone in and I've just sort of, I, I've, I've met Tracy several times before she wrote to me when I was away. In, through the crowd, she saw me and she sort of looked at me, made eye contact, looked away, and then she sort of spun her head back again. And a big grin come up to her face and she gave me a wave. So I've made my way through the crowd. She's come away from who she was talking to. And um, she went, oh, I've not seen you about for ages. How are you? And I said, like, you know, I'd had a baby, give up my master's and not making any work. My God. When I said I'm not making any artwork, her face just changed. And she gave me a proper bollocking in front of everyone. Not loud. But she was going, what do you mean you've given up art? She went, the route you took to the art world and you've turned your back on it. She said, all you've done to be an artist. She went, how can someone like you turn your back on art? Now, she said, oh, I, said, but I haven't got the time and I haven't got the money. And I haven't got the anywhere to do it. She went, you've got your fucking head. You can, your head can be your studio. You can make art in your head. You get a computer, pen and paper. She went, that's what you do. And she'd give me a bollocking. And, and, but that got me back into it again. She got me back into it. Well, yeah. Brilliant. Such a good story. There you go. So what, what did you do after that then? What happened? What were you making? Um, well, I, I sort of questioned myself. I was doing a few sketches, just getting the, the juices flowing again. And then where I was working at the time, they had a, a blank white wall, which was 12 by 13 feet. And uh, I sort of, going back to the Myra Hindley, I thought I'm going to try and do something like um, the Myra Hindley Marcus Harvey's Myra Hindley on that piece of wall. 
So I asked the people where I was working if I could do this thing with the workers' hands. And um, where I was working, they printed newspapers. So they, they agreed, and they said, right, just find out from the guys um, which subject they wanted to do. And of course, I'm in a male environment. They wanted to do a page three girl. So <laughs> I insisted that it was only, you know, the, the head was used. Um, and that's what I've done. And I, but I did say to myself, I'll try and pull this off. And if I can't pull it off, then I'm not worthy. So it was like a little competition with myself. And um, one of my friends come down and to have a look at it, uh, who works with public art. And I said, you know, this is what I'm planning to do on this great big wall. And he went, how are you going to do it? I said, I don't know. I said, but I'm starting Thursday. You know, this was like Monday. And he went, just, just don't, you'll embarrass yourself. You know, just don't do it. I went, oh, I reckon I could do it. And then, yeah, I smashed it. It was, it was really, it, well, yeah, it was good enough. So I said, that's it. That's when I wanted to start my art journey again. And that was, that was about, again, about seven years ago. It's really interesting, actually, because as soon as you sort of then decided to do that, you actually went and did something quite public. Like, I mean, even though it was in your workplace, yeah. it's a very public place, right? Yeah. As opposed to, you know, just a quiet drawing in your back room mm. or something like that, that you actually thought yeah, well, took a I, really bold step. As a, as a person, whenever I feel a bit embarrassed about something, mm. my instinct, as it is with all of us, is to sort of not show it. And then something inside me goes, no, fuck it, go for it. Which is like um, how I do like a podcast myself now. I'm very conscious of the way that I talk. And you don't hear it a lot in the art world. And I tended to sort of pull away when I was talking to certain people about art. I did feel a bit inferior, even though my knowledge was as good as theirs because of all the reading that I've done. Um, but I would feel quite inferior, or not inferior, I'd feel very conscious about my accent. And then I just went, no, fuck it, I'm going to go the other way. And then I just started a podcast, so I thought, well, I'll let everyone hear my voice. That's one way of getting accepted, you know. And I should add that the only person who was bothered by my accent, the only person I've found who's bothered by my accent is me. No one ever, I've had a few people question it when I start talking and they hear me talking about art, or mainly artists, and my knowledge of the artists, you do have people go, fucking hell, I weren't expecting you to know as much because of the way I talk. So it's probably me with a chip on my shoulder rather than anyone else, but that's what I've found. And yeah, because I think, you know, your, your podcasts are great, and, you know, I think you have really sort of um, intelligent conversations around artwork, you know, mm. in terms of, you know, your references and things, because you've really remembered a lot of the exhibitions you've mm. been to, and mm. like you said, all the reading and everything. But I, you know, I'm listening to what you've got to say rather than yeah. your accent yeah. anyway. Yeah. Well, I've found that people get over that pretty much straight away. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so the only one with a hang-up on it really is, is me, but, and that's how I've got around it. By actually getting out there and having more conversations yeah, and putting yeah. it in the public domain. Yeah. So, after producing the artwork in the workplace, when did you get to have your first show? Did you do a group show or did you go straight in for a solo show, going big every time? Yeah, I was, I was in the Batsy Arts Centre doing a... I, I got asked to do a, um, a production, to, or to be part of a production, talking about London stories. So I was telling people, again, rather than me sort of just tell one or two people about um, my art, I thought, well, fuck it, I'm going to be part of this presentation at, at the Batsy Arts Centre where people would come in and listen to my story. So I'd, I'd, tell, I'd narrate a story that was like 10 minutes long and audiences would come in. And that was another way of me dealing with it. So I'd talk to them. 
um, telling my story. And at that time, I got asked to be in a show in Ipswich, a group show, um, at the Ipswich Drawing, the Suffolk Drawing School, is it? Um, I got asked to be in there, and I just put an old piece of artwork in. I, I've always had visions of grandeur, you know. I wanted, I didn't want to be just to put one little piece in a group show. I wanted to try and make something big, make a statement. Um, and because of my change of identity, um, where I was set up by this drugs gang, on paper I am forever going to be a drug smuggler. And I've never taken drugs. I, I tried a joint when I was 15, didn't like it. Tried a line of coke, weren't my thing. Never had an ecstasy pill. But I hate the fact that I'm always going to be a drug smuggler. So I've had my identity changed by other people. Um, and I was trying to come up with an exhibition that I could show that change of identity. What I came up with, through a conversation with a Hollywood actor, funnily enough, I was... I was going to do it with him. He's, his name's Michael K. Williams. He was in, have you heard of Boardwalk Empire or The Wire? Yeah. Like, he's in that. He's a black guy with a big scarf from his forehead down to his chin. And he used to be a choreographer. Um, he's never been villainous type bloke. And he was saying how everyone thinks he's a villain and all the roles he has now, he's a villain because of this scar. But he's not a villainous person. So I thought I'll put the change of identity onto him. So we was going to do a project together. While we was talking, well, I met him while he was filming in London, and while we was talking about him and his scar, he said that when he walks down the street in London, in Kensington, like Kensington, people, he said it's like Moses, people are parting out of the way because he's got the swagger of someone from New York, black guy with his big scar. He said people were just parting. And then I said to him, well, if it was a woman with exactly the same scar, people would feel empathy towards her, you know. Um, and we were talking about that parallel between women with scarring and men with scarring, empathy for the woman and fear when they see the guy thinking he's some villain or something. And then I mentioned to him, we were talking about severities of scarring, and I mentioned Katie Piper, who's a TV um, presenter who used to be a model, but um, she had acid thrown in her face, which disfigured her entire face and chest. And as we were talking about that, my idea shifted from him onto Katie Piper, the changing of identity. So I said to Michael, like there and then, I said, look, this is just changed. You know, I'm, I'm going to use Katie Piper now, which he thought was, you know, great. I'm with this Hollywood actor. And I'll say, no, it's, it's gone now. It's, you know. So I contacted the Katie Piper Foundation and I said, like, I've got this idea about um, the changing of identity. I want to use artwork as a metaphor. I want to take artwork from one artist who is the victim take their artwork and hand it to another artist who I'm seeing as the assailant and I want them to disfigure or manipulate that artwork to however they please from very minimal to as much as they like you know burn it to ashes if you like um, and that was my first show I ended up getting 15 artworks um, from various artists including Sarah Lucas made me a piece for the show for my first show um, who else was there? Um, Jake and Dinos Chapman, Gavin Turk, Ray Richardson, um, several of the people who had wrote to me while I was in there, and then artists that I'd met along the way. Um, and it went from homeless, because like, I worked with homeless and prisoners, um, so it went from homeless artists to 
Turner Prize nominated and everyone in between. And I was taking it from one artist, giving it to another. And that was the first, the first show. And I'm, on, I'm just about to start the third one in April. And where's that taking place? It's taking place in Jealous, Jealous Gallery on Curtain Road in Shoreditch, 18th of April. And it's going to be the third show. And how many artists have you got for this one? Um, I, I intended to, again, just to use 15 artworks and give it to 15 artists. I'm already up to 23 and 23 at the moment, where a lot of these where I've been doing the podcast, meeting artists I've never met before, and saying, I love your work, would you be in my show? And then I've got to stop now. So, there's only so much wall space jealous I've got, you know. We'll have to start putting them on the ceiling. So, face value is for the Katie Piper Foundation, and you said the third exhibition is going to be this April. It is. Have you got the same artists that are showing um, this year that you've had previous years? Yeah, well, the only reason I went on to do the second one is because some of the first artists asked to be in it again. They like the idea of hand, they like the idea of being taken out of their comfort zone. Um, and they asked me to be in the second show. So that's when I produced the second show. And I introduced other artists such as we had Mark Wallinger for the second one, Mark Kitchener, um, Brent Simonson, uh, Bill Daggs. On the third show, I have some of the regular artists um, and I brought in some new artists that I've met along the way. A lot of the artists that you've got in the exhibition, are they people that you've also been interviewing this last year for the podcast? Yeah, I've met the several that's, that I've interviewed from the podcast. Alice Irwin, most recently. Um, Benjamin Murphy. Um, Benjamin Murphy, funnily enough, when I was telling him about the feelings that the donating artist gets and the responsibility that the manipulating artist has, Benjamin asked if he could be both. So... Of course, I agreed, you know. I was quite tempted to give him his own work, to manipulate his own work. I thought that would have been funny, but he sort of um, superseded that and uh, he said he wouldn't, he wouldn't do that. So let's talk about the podcast. So how, long's, how old is it now? Did you start it? Was it last summer? I did start in the summer, but I'd been doing it for two months before because I, w I wanted to get uh, a bulk of artists behind me just as a safety net, really. I did want the artists that I'd wrote to in order. I wanted Dougie Fields to be my first because he was the person that sort of, he was the foundations of, of everything that I am now. Um, the next two were Ray Richardson and Patrick Hughes. They're the ones I wanted next. So as long as I had them three first, everyone else was just friends and, and artists that I've met along the way. And you've got you've got quite a lot of artists lined up on your website. Is that like about 50 or so of them? Are they all done or are they yeah, well that, scheduled? Again, or? that was that was a bit of a mistake on my behalf because mm. I thought, well, there's going to be so many people saying no. I just sent an email out. I had a list of the artists that wrote to me when I was away that I've kept for years. I've got other, like on my phone, for instance, you know, all the artists that I've got on my phone. I just wrote to maybe about... 50 artists straight away and said, look, I'm going to do a podcast. Can I have a yes, no, or maybe from you for a future episode? And then bang, 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 yes, yes, yes. So, yeah, I've got, I've got people split up into regions, you know, like South London or East London. So if I'm recording one in East London, I'll try and tap someone else up to do another. Um, but I do just I go into the studio. I have a set of seven questions and we just have a conversation, really, rather than an interview. Yeah. Um, I'm not an interview type person. I do joke a lot, but I'm not. I'm more like Billy Bragg than Melvin Bragg. <laughs> so, uh, so um, yeah, I've got set seven questions, and they're my safety net. And a lot of the time, 
I get rabbit in and forget about and them. The conversation goes all different ways. So do you get people writing to you as well, asking to be on the podcast? I've had a couple since contact me. Mm-hmm. Um, do you say yes to everyone? Pretty much. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And I don't care. I, you know, we've got the likes. I've got the likes of Mark Wallinger, um, Matt Collishaw, Gavin Turk. You know, those people that were writing to me, the ones who have, are of stature, if you like. But again, I made sure that shoulder to shoulder were homeless um, artists that I've worked with because their story is just as relevant to me, uh, if not more really, than someone who's Turner nominated, you know, someone who's who's made that travel off of the streets and sleeping rough. Art has, what art has done them, just getting them housed, getting a roof over their head, to me is as big as Mark Wallinger and Turner Prize. You know, it's how I, I see it. You know, art has made that journey for, for all of these people. Yeah. And are you uh, still only... No, because actually now you're sort of speaking to uh, all sorts of different people as well, right? So it's not only um, artists, but it's actually people in the art world as yeah, well. You had the, cus- I, the trust on there recently. And- yeah, because I sort of... I, I look at who I'd like to listen to as a... Because pod- I, I was into a podcast for 12, 18 months before I, I decided to make one. Um, and I like the idea of speaking to... M- mine is predominantly artists, going into the artist studio and talking to the artists. But I like the idea of speaking to a gallerist, speaking to people who make paintbrushes, people who make the paint, you know, um, people in PR, people in a- anything that an artist would use, you know, in, in their peripherals, if you like. So a bit like mine, actually, as well, because that's, that's uh, predominantly artists, but then we kind of have this other sort of business marketing angle as well, where we're sort of bringing in people that yeah. are related, you know, in the related sort of sectors as well. Gary, where can people find you online? I am on all social medias. I am Mizog Art, M-I-Z-O-G-A-R-T. Um, my own work is garymansfield.co.uk. And I will put all of that in the show notes. Thank you, Gary, oh, thank so you much. much for being on the show. It's been great talking thank to you. you.